Chapter Three of Out of Time's Abyss. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy LaFaro. Out of Time's Abyss by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Three. Half stunned, Bradley lay for a minute as he had fallen, and then slowly and painfully wriggled into a less uncomfortable position. He could see nothing of his surroundings in the gloom about him, until after a few minutes his eyes became accustomed to the dark interior when he rolled them from side to side in survey of his prison. He discovered himself to be in a bare room which was windowless, nor could he see any other opening than that through which he had been lowered. In one corner was a huddled mass that might have been almost anything from a bundle of rags to a dead body. Almost immediately after he had taken his bearings, Bradley commenced working with his bonds. He was a man of powerful physique, and as from the first he had been imbued with the belief that the fibre ropes were too weak to hold him, he worked on with a firm conviction that sooner or later they would part to his strainings. After a matter of five minutes, he was positive that the strains about his wrists were beginning to give, but he was compelled to rest then from exhaustion. As he lay, his eyes rested upon the bundle in the corner, and presently he could have sworn that the thing moved. With eyes straining through the gloom, the man lay watching the grim and sinister thing in the corner. Perhaps his overwrought nerves were playing a sorry joke upon him. He thought of this and also that his condition of utter helplessness might still further have stimulated his imagination. He closed his eyes and sought to relax his muscles and his nerves. But when he looked again, he knew that he had not been mistaken. The thing had moved. Now it lay in a slightly altered form, and farther from the wall. It was nearer him. With renewed strength, Bradley strained at his bonds, his fascinated gaze still glued upon the shapeless bundle. No longer was there any doubt that it moved. He saw it rise in the centre several inches, and then creep closer to him. It sank and arose again. A headless hideous, monstrous thing of menace. Its very silence rendered it the more terrible. Bradley was a brave man. Ordinarily, his nerves were of steel. But to be at the mercy of some unknown and nameless horror, to be unable to defend himself, it was these things that almost unstrung him. For at best, he was only human. To stand in the open, even with the odds all against him, to be able to use his fists, to put up some sort of defence, to inflict punishment upon his adversary. Then he could face death with a smile. It was not death that he feared now. It was that horror of the unknown that is part of the fibre of every son of woman. Closer and closer came the shapeless mass. Bradley lay motionless and listened. What was that he heard? Breathing? 
he could not be mistaken. And then, from out of the bundle of rags, issued a hollow groan. Bradley felt his hair rise upon his head. He struggled with the slowly parting strands that held him. The thing beside him rose up higher than before, and the Englishman could have sworn that he saw a single eye peering at him from among the tumbled cloth. For a moment the bundle remained motionless. Only the sound of breathing issued from it. Then there broke from it a maniacal laugh. Cold sweat stood upon Bradley's brow as he tugged for liberation. He saw the rags rise higher and higher above him, until at last they tumbled upon the floor from the body of a naked man, a thin, a bony, a hideous caricature of man, that mouthed and mummed and, wobbling upon its weak and shaking legs, crumpled to the floor again, still laughing, laughing horribly. It crawled toward Bradley. Food! Food! it screamed. There is a way out! There is a way out! Dragging itself to his side, the creature slumped upon the Englishman's breast. Food! it shrilled, as with its bony fingers and its teeth, it sought the man's bare throat. Food! There is a way out! Bradley felt teeth upon his jugular. He turned and twisted, shaking himself free for an instant. But once more, with hideous persistence, the thing fastened itself upon him. The weak jaws were unable to send the dull teeth through the victim's flesh. But Bradley felt it pawing, pawing, pawing like a monstrous rat, seeking his life's blood. The skinny arms now embraced his neck, holding the teeth to his throat against all his efforts to dislodge the thing. Weak as it was, it had strength enough for this in its mad efforts to eat. Mumbling as it worked, it repeated again and again, Food! Food! There is a way out! Until Bradley thought those two expressions alone would drive him mad. And all but mad he was, as with a final effort, backed by almost maniacal strength, he tore his wrists from the confining bonds, and grasping the repulsive thing upon his breast, hurled it halfway across the room. Panting like a spent hound, Bradley worked at the thongs about his ankles, while the maniac lay quivering and mumbling where it had fallen. Presently the Englishman leapt to his feet, freer than he had ever before felt in all his life, though he was still hopelessly a prisoner in the blue place of seven skulls. With his back against the wall for support, so weak the reaction left him, Bradley stood watching the creature upon the floor. He saw it move and slowly raise itself to its hands and knees, where it swayed to and fro as its eyes roved about in search of him. And when at last they found him, there broke from the drawn lips the mumbled words, Food! 
food. There is a way out. The pitiful supplication in the tones touched the Englishman's heart. He knew that this could be no Wiru, but possibly once a man like himself, who had been cast into this pit of solitary confinement, with this hideous result that might in time be his fate also. And then, too, there was the suggestion of hope, held out by the constant reiteration of the phrase, There is a way out. Was there a way out? What did this poor thing know? Who are you, and how long have you been here? Bradley suddenly demanded. For a moment the man upon the floor made no response. Then, mumblingly, came the words, Food! Food! Stop! commanded the Englishman. The injunction might have been barked from the muzzle of a pistol. It brought the man to a sitting posture, his hands off the ground. He stopped swaying to and fro, and appeared to be startled into an attempt to master his faculties of concentration and thought. Bradley repeated his questions sharply. I am Antak, the Galu, replied the man. Luata alone knows how long I have been here. Maybe ten moons, maybe ten moons three times. It was the Caspakian equivalent of thirty. I was young and strong when they brought me here. Now I am old and very weak. I am Kosatalu. That is why they have not killed me. If I tell them the secret of becoming Kosatalu, they will take me out. But how can I tell them that which Luata alone knows? What is Kosatalu? demanded Bradley. Food! Food! There is a way out! mumbled the Galu. Bradley strode across the floor, seized the man by his shoulders, and shook him. Tell me, he cried, what is Kosatalu? Food! whimpered Antak. Bradley bethought himself. His haversack had not been taken from him. In it, besides his razor and knife, were odds and ends of equipment, and a small quantity of dried meat. He tossed a small strip of the latter to the starving Galoo. Antak seized upon it and devoured it ravenously. It instilled new life in the man. What is Kosatalu? insisted Bradley again. Antak tried to explain. His narrative was often broken by lapses of concentration, during which he reverted to his plaintive mumbling for food and recurrence to the statement that there was a way out. But by firmness and patience, the Englishman drew out piecemeal, a more or less lucid exposition of the remarkable scheme of evolution that rules in Caspak. In it he found explanations of the hitherto inexplicable. He discovered why he had seen no babes or children among the Caspakian tribes with which he had come in contact, why each more northerly tribe evinced a higher state of development than those south of them, why each tribe included individuals ranging in physical and mental characteristics from the highest of the next lower race 
to the lowest of the next higher, and why the women of each tribe immerse themselves morning for an hour or more in the warm pools near which the habitations of their people always were located, and too he discovered why those pools were almost immune from the attacks of carnivorous animals and reptiles. He learnt that all but those who were Kosatalu came up Kosvajo, or from the beginning. The egg from which they first developed into tadpole form was deposited, with millions of others, in one of the warm pools, and with it a poisonous serum that the carnivora instinctively shunned. Down the warm stream from the pool floated the countless billions of eggs and tadpoles, developing as they drifted slowly toward the sea. Some became tadpoles in the pool, some in the sluggish stream, and some not until they reached the great inland sea. In the next stage they became fishes or reptiles. Antac was not positive which, and in this form, always developing, they swam far to the south, where amid the rank and teeming jungles some of them evolved into amphibians. Always there were those whose development stopped at the first stage, others whose development ceased when they became reptiles, while by far the greater proportion formed the food supply of the ravenous creatures of the deep. Few indeed were those that eventually developed into baboons and then apes, which was considered by Caspakians the real beginning of evolution. From the egg, then, the individual developed slowly into a higher form, just as the frog's egg develops through various stages, from a fish with gills to a frog with lungs. With that thought in mind, Bradley discovered that it was not difficult to believe in the possibility of such a scheme. There was nothing new in it. From the ape, the individual, if it survived, slowly developed into the lowest order of man, the Alu, and then by degrees to Bolu, Stolu, Bandlu, Krolu, and finally Galu. And in each stage, countless millions of other eggs were deposited in the warm pools of the various races and floated down to the great sea to go through a similar process of evolution outside the womb as develops our own young within. But in Caspak, the scheme is much more inclusive, for it combines not only individual development, but the evolution of species and genera. If an egg survives, it goes through all the stages of development that man has passed through during the unthinkable eons since life first moved upon the earth's face. The final stage, that which the Galus have almost attained, and for which all hope, is Kosatalu, which literally means no egg man, or one who is born directly, as are the young of the outer world of mammals. Some of the Galus produce Kosatalu and Kosatalo both, the Wirus only Kosatalu. In other words, all Wirus are born male. And so they prey upon the Galus for their women, and sometimes capture and torture the Galu men, who are Kosatalu in an endeavour to learn the secret which they believe will give them unlimited power over all other denizens of Kaspak. No Wirus come up from the beginning. All are born of the Wiru fathers and Galu mothers, who are Kosatalo, 
and there are very few of the latter, owing to the long and precarious stages of development. Seven generations of the same ancestor must come up from the beginning before a Kosatalu child may be born. And when one considers the frightful dangers that surround the vital spark from the moment it leaves the warm pool, where it has been deposited to float down to the sea amid the voracious creatures that swarm the surface and the deeps of the almost equally unthinkable trials of its effort to survive after it once becomes a land animal and starts northward through the horrors of the Caspakian jungles and forests, it is plainly a wonder that even a single babe has ever been born to a Galoo woman. Seven cycles it requires before the seventh Galoo can complete the seventh danger-infested circle since its first Galoo ancestor achieved the state of Galoo. For ages before, the ancestors of this first Galoo may have developed from a Bandaloo or Bolu egg without ever once completing the whole circle. That is from a Galoo egg back to a fully developed Galoo. Bradley's head was whirling before he even commenced to grasp the complexities of Caspakian evolution. But as the truth slowly filtered into his understanding, as gradually it became possible for him to visualize the scheme, it appeared simpler. In fact, it seemed even less difficult of comprehension than that with which he was familiar. For several minutes after Antak ceased speaking, his voice having trailed off weakly into silence, neither spoke again. Then the Galoo recommenced his, Food! Food! There is a way out! Bradley tossed him another bit of dried meat, waiting patiently until he had eaten it, this time more slowly. What do you mean by saying there is a way out? he asked. He who died here just after I came told me, replied Antak. He said there was a way out, that he had discovered it, but was too weak to use his knowledge. He was trying to tell me how to find it when he died. Oh, Luata, if he had lived but a moment more. They do not feed you here? asked Bradley. No. They give me water once a day, that is all. But how have you lived then? The lizards and the rats, replied Antak. The lizards are not so bad, but the rats are foul to taste. However, I must eat them, or they would eat me, and they are better than nothing. But of late they do not come so often, and I have not had a lizard for a long time. I shall eat, though, he mumbled, I shall eat now, for you cannot remain awake for ever, he laughed, a cackling dry laugh. When you sleep, Antak will eat. It was horrible. Bradley shuddered. For a long time each sat in silence. The Englishman could guess why the other made no sound. He awaited the moment that sleep should overcome his victim. In the long silence... There was born upon Bradley's ears a faint, monotonous sound as of running water. He listened intently. It seemed to come from far beneath the floor. "'What is that noise?' he asked. "'That sounds like water running through a narrow channel.' 
"'It is the river,' replied Antak. "'Why do you not go to sleep? "'It passes directly beneath the blue place of seven skulls. "'It runs through the temple grounds, "'beneath the temple and under the city. "'When we die, they will cut off our heads "'and throw our bodies into the river. "'At the mouth of the river await many large reptiles. "'Thus do they feed.' The Wirus do likewise with their own dead, keeping only the skulls and the wings. Come, let us sleep. Do the reptiles come up the river into the city? asked Bradley. The water is too cold. They never leave the warm water of the great pool, replied Antak. Let us search for the way out, suggested Bradley. Antak shook his head. I have searched for all these moons, he said. If I could not find it, how would you? Bradley made no reply, but commenced a diligent examination of the walls and floor of the room, pressing over each square foot and tapping with his knuckles. About six feet from the floor he discovered a sleeping perch near one end of the apartment. He asked Antak about it but the Galoo said that no Wiru had occupied the place since he had been incarcerated there. Again and again, Bradley went over the floor and walls as high up as he could reach. Finally, he swung himself to the perch that he might examine at least one end of the room all the way to the ceiling. In the centre of the wall close to the top, an area about three feet square gave forth a hollow sound when he rapped upon it. Bradley felt over every square inch of that area with the tips of his fingers. Near the top he found a small round hole, a trifle larger in diameter than his forefinger, which he immediately stuck into it. The panel, if such it was, seemed about an inch thick, and beyond it his finger encountered nothing. Bradley crooked his finger upon the opposite side of the panel and pulled toward him. Steadily, but with considerable force. Suddenly the panel flew inward, nearly precipitating the man to the floor. It was hinged at the bottom, and when lowered the outer edge rested upon the perch, making a little platform parallel with the floor of the room. Beyond the opening was an utterly dark void. The Englishman leaned through it and reached his arm as far as possible into the blackness, but touched nothing. Then he fumbled in his haversack for a match, a few of which remained to him. When he struck it, Antak gave a cry of terror. Bradley held the light far into the opening before him, and in its flickering rays saw the top of a ladder descending into a black abyss below. How far down it extended, he could not guess. But that he should soon know definitely he was positive. "'You have found it! You have found the way out!' screamed Antak. "'Oh, Luata, and now I am too weak to go. Take me with you! Take me with you!' "'Shut up!' admonished Bradley. "'You will have the whole flock of birds around our heads in a minute, and neither of us will escape. Be quiet, and I'll go ahead. If I find a way out, I'll come back and help you.' "'if you'll promise not to try to eat me up again.' 
"'I promise,' cried Antac. "'Oh, Luata, how could you blame me? "'I am half crazed of hunger and long confinement "'and the horror of the lizards and the rats "'and the constant waiting for death.' "'I know,' said Bradley simply. "'I'm sorry for you, old Top. "'Keep a stiff upper lip.' "'And he slipped through the opening, "'found the ladder with his feet, "'closed the panel behind him, "'and started downward into the darkness.' Below him rose more and more distinctly the sound of running water. The air felt damp and cool. He could see nothing of his surroundings, and felt nothing but the smooth, worn sides and rungs of the ladder, down which he felt his way cautiously, lest a broken rung or a misstep should hurl him downward. As he descended thus slowly, the ladder seemed interminable, and the pit bottomless. Yet he realised when at last he reached the bottom, that he could not have descended more than fifty feet. The bottom of the ladder rested on a narrow ledge, paved with what felt like large round stones, but what he knew from experience to be human skulls. He could not but marvel as to where so many countless thousands of things had come from, until he paused to consider that the infancy of Caspak dated doubtlessly back into remote ages, far beyond what the outer world considered the beginning of earthly time. For all these eons, the Wirus might have been collecting human skulls from their enemies and their own dead, enough to have built an entire city of them. Feeling his way along the narrow ledge, Bradley came presently to a blank wall that stretched out over the water swirling beneath him, as far as he could reach. Stooping, he groped about with one hand, reaching down toward the surface of the water, and discovered that the bottom of the wall arched above the stream. How much space there was between the water and the arch, he could not tell, nor how deep the former. There was only one way in which he might learn these things, and that was to lower himself into the stream. But for only an instant he hesitated, weighing his chances. Behind him lay almost certainly the horrid fate of Antac. Before him, nothing worse than a comparatively painless death by drowning. Holding his haversack above his head, with one hand he lowered his feet slowly over the edge of the narrow platform. Almost immediately he felt the swirling of the cold water about his ankles, and then, with a silent prayer, he let himself drop gently into the stream. Great was Bradley's relief when he found the water no more than waist-deep and beneath his feet a firm gravel bottom. Feeling his way cautiously, he moved downward with the current, which was not so strong as he had imagined from the noise of the running water. Beneath the first arch he made his way, following the winding curvatures of the right-hand wall, after a few yards of progress, his hand came suddenly in contact with a slimy thing clinging to the wall, a thing that hissed and scuttled out of reach. What it was, the man could not know, but almost instantly there was a splash in the water just ahead of him, and then another. On he went, passing beneath other arches at varying distances, and always in utter darkness. Unseen denizens of this great sewer, disturbed by the intruder, splashed into the water ahead of him and wriggled away. 
Time and again his hand touched them, and never for an instant could he be sure that the next step some gruesome thing might not attack him. He had strapped his haversack about his neck, well above the surface of the water, and in his left hand he carried his knife. Other precautions there were none to take. The monotony of the blind trail was increased by the fact that, from the moment he had started from the foot of the ladder, he had counted his every step. He had promised to return for Antac, if it proved humanly possible to do so, and he knew that in the blackness of the tunnel he could locate the foot of the ladder in no other way. He had taken two hundred and sixty-nine steps. Afterward, he knew that he should never forget that number, when something bumped gently against him from behind. Instantly he wheeled about, and with knife ready to defend himself, stretched forth his right hand to push away the object that now had lodged against his body. His fingers, feeling through the darkness, came in contact with something cold and clammy. They passed to and fro over the thing, until Bradley knew that it was the face of a dead man floating upon the surface of the stream. With an oath he pushed his gruesome companion out into midstream, to float down toward the great pool and the awaiting scavengers of the deep. At his four hundred and thirtieth step another corpse bumped against him. How many had passed him without touching he could not guess. But suddenly he experienced the sensation of being surrounded by dead faces floating along with him, all set in hideous grimaces, their dead eyes glaring at this profaning alien who dared intrude upon the waters of this river of the dead, a horrid escort, pregnant with dire forebodings and with menace. Though he advanced very slowly, he tried always to take steps of about the same length, so that he knew that, though considerable time had elapsed, yet he had really advanced no more than four hundred yards, when ahead he saw a lessening of the pitch blackness, and at the next turn of the stream his surroundings became vaguely discernible. Above him was an arched roof, and on either hand walls pierced at intervals by apertures covered with wooden doors. Just ahead of him, in the roof of the aqueduct, was a round black hole about thirty inches in diameter. His eyes still rested upon the opening, when there shot downward from it to the water below the naked body of a human being, which almost immediately rose to the surface again and floated off down the stream. In the dim light, Bradley saw that it was a dead weiru, from which the wings and head had been removed. A moment later, another headless body floated past. Recalling what Antak had told him of the skull-collecting customs of the Wiru, Bradley wondered how it happened that the first corpse he had encountered in the stream had not been similarly mutilated. The farther he advanced now, the lighter it became. The number of corpses was much smaller than he had imagined, only two more passing him before at six hundred steps, or about five hundred yards from the point he had taken to the stream, he came to the end of the tunnel, and looked out upon sunlit water 
running between grassy banks. One of the last corpses to pass him was still clothed in the white robe of a wiru, blood-stained over the headless neck that it concealed. Drawing closer to the opening leading into the bright daylight, Bradley surveyed what lay beyond. A short distance before him, a large building stood in the centre of several acres of grass and tree-covered ground, spanning the stream which disappeared through an opening in its foundation wall. From the large, saucer-shaped roof and the vivid colourings of the various heterogeneous parts of the structure, he recognised it as the temple past which he had been born to the blue place of seven skulls. To and fro flew Wirus, going to and from the temple. Others passed on foot across the open grounds, assisting themselves with their great wings, so that they barely skimmed the earth. To leave the mouth of the tunnel would have been to court instant discovery and capture. But by what other avenue he might escape, Bradley could not guess, unless he retraced his steps up the stream and sought egress from the other end of the city. The thought of traversing that dark and horror-ridden tunnel for perhaps miles he could not entertain. There must be some other way. Perhaps after dark he could steal through the temple grounds and continue on downstream until he had come beyond the city. And so he stood and waited until his limbs became almost paralysed with cold, and he knew that he must find some other plan for escape. A half-formed decision to risk an attempt to swim underwater to the temple was crystallising, in spite of the fact that any chance Wiru flying above the stream might easily see him. When again a floating object bumped against him from behind and lodged across his back. Turning quickly, he saw that the thing was what he had immediately guessed it to be, a headless and wingless Wiru corpse. With a grunt of disgust, he was about to push it from him, when the white garment enshrouding it suggested a bold plan to his resourceful brain. Grasping the corpse by an arm, he tore the garment from it, and then let the body float downward toward the temple. With great care he draped the robe about him. The bloody blotch that had covered the severed neck he arranged about his own head. His haversack he rolled as tightly as possible, and stuffed beneath his coat over his breast. Then he fell gently to the surface of the stream, and lying upon his back, floated downward with the current and out into the open sunlight. Through the weave of the cloth he could distinguish large objects. He saw a wiru flap dismally above him. He saw the banks of the stream float slowly past. He heard a sudden wail upon the right-hand shore, and his heart stood still lest his ruse had been discovered. But never, by a move of a muscle, did he betray that aught but a cold lump of clay floated there upon the bosom of the water, and soon, though it seemed an eternity to him, the direct sunlight was blotted out, and he knew that he had entered beneath the temple. Quickly he felt for bottom, with his feet, and as quickly stood erect. 
snatching the bloody, clammy cloth from his face. On both sides were blank walls, and before him the river turned a sharp corner and disappeared. Feeling his way cautiously forward, he approached the turn and looked around the corner. To his left was a low platform about a foot above the level of the stream, and on to this he lost no time in climbing, for he was soaked from head to foot, cold and almost exhausted. As he lay resting on the skull-paved shelf, he saw in the centre of the vault above the river another of those sinister round holes through which he momentarily expected to see a headless corpse shoot downward in its last plunge to a watery grave. A few feet along the platform, a closed door broke the blankness of the wall. As he lay looking at it and wondering what lay behind, his mind filled with fragments of many wild schemes of escape, it opened and a white-robed wieroo stepped out upon the platform. The creature carried a large wooden basin filled with rubbish. Its eyes were not upon Bradley, who drew himself to a squatting position and crouched as far back in the corner of the niche in which the platform was set as he could force himself. The wieroo stepped to the edge of the platform and dumped the rubbish into the stream. If it turned away from him as it started to retrace its steps to the doorway, there was a small chance that it might not see him. But if it turned toward him, there was none at all. Bradley held his breath. The wieroo paused a moment, gazing down into the water. Then it straightened up and turned toward the Englishman. Bradley did not move. The wieroo stopped and stared intently at him. It approached him questioningly. Still, Bradley remained as though carved of stone. The creature was directly in front of him. It stopped. There was no chance on earth that it would not discover what he was. With the quickness of a cat, Bradley sprang to his feet, and with all his great strength, backed by his heavy weight, struck the wieroo upon the point of the chin. Without a sound, the thing crumpled to the platform, while Bradley, acting almost instinctively to the urge of the first law of nature, rolled the inanimate body over the edge into the river. Then he looked at the open doorway, crossed the platform, and peered within the apartment beyond. What he saw was a large room, dimly lighted, and about the side rows of wooden vessels stacked one upon another. There was no wieroo in sight, so the Englishman entered. At the far end of the room was another door, and as he crossed toward it, he glanced into some of the vessels, which he found were filled with dried fruits, vegetables, and fish. Without more ado, he stuffed his pockets and his haversack full, thinking of the poor creature awaiting his return in the gloom of the place of seven skulls. When night came, he would return and fetch Antac, this far at least. But in the meantime, it was his intention to reconnoitre, in the hope that he might discover some easier way out of the city than that offered by the chill black channel of the ghastly river of corpses. Beyond the farther door stretched a long passageway from which closed doorways led into other parts of the cellars of the temple. A few yards from the storeroom, 
A ladder rose from the corridor through an aperture in the ceiling. Bradley paused at the foot of it, debating the wisdom of further investigation against a return to the river. But strong within him was the spirit of exploration that had scattered his race to the four corners of the earth. What new mysteries lay hidden in the chambers above? The urge to know was strong upon him, though his better judgment warned him that the safer course lay in retreat. For a moment he stood thus, running his fingers through his hair. Then he cast discretion to the winds and began the ascent. In conformity with such weary architecture as he had already observed, the well through which the ladder rose continually cantered at an angle from the perpendicular. At more or less regular stages it was pierced by apertures closed by doors, none of which he could open until he had climbed fully fifty feet from the river level. Here he discovered a door already ajar, opening into a large circular chamber, the walls and floors of which were covered with the skins of wild beasts and with rugs of many colours. But what interested him most was the occupants of the room, a wiru and a girl of human proportions. She was standing with her back against a column, which rose from the centre of the apartment from floor to ceiling, a hollow column about forty inches in diameter, in which he could see an opening some thirty inches across. The girl's side was toward Bradley, and her face averted, for she was watching the wiru, who was now advancing slowly toward her, talking as he came. Bradley could distinctly hear the words of the creature, who was urging the girl to accompany him to another Wiru city. "'Come with me,' he said, "'and you shall have your life. Remain here, and he who speaks for Luata will claim you for his own, and when he is done with you, your skull will bleach at the top of a tall staff, while your body feeds the reptiles at the mouth of the river of death.' Even though you bring into the world a female wiru, your fate will be the same if you do not escape him, while with me you shall have life and food, and none shall harm you. He was quite close to the girl when she replied by striking him in the face with all her strength. Until I am slain, she cried, I shall fight against you all. From the throat of the wiru issued that dismal wail that Bradley had heard so often in the past. It was like a scream of pain, smothered to a groan, and then the thing leapt upon the girl, its face working in hideous grimaces as it clawed and beat at her to force her to the floor. The Englishman was upon the point of entering to defend her when a door at the opposite side of the chamber opened to admit a huge wiru clothed entirely in red. At sight of the two struggling upon the floor, the newcomer raised his voice in a shriek of rage. Instantly, the wiru who was attacking the girl leapt to his feet and faced the other. "'I heard,' screamed he who had just entered the room, "'I heard, and when he who speaks for Luata shall have heard,' he paused, and made a suggestive movement of a finger across his throat. "'He shall not hear,' returned the first Wiru, as with a powerful motion of his great wings he launched himself upon the red-robed figure. 
The latter dodged the first charge, drew a wicked-looking curved blade from beneath its red robe, spread its wings, and dived for its antagonist. Beating their wings, wailing and groaning, the two hideous things sparred for position. The white-robed one being unarmed sought to grasp the other by the wrist of its knife hand and by the throat, while the latter hopped around on its dainty white feet, seeking an opening for a mortal blow. Once it struck and missed, and then the other rushed in and clinched, at the same time securing both the holds it sought. Immediately the two commenced beating at each other's heads with the joints of their wings, kicking with their soft puny feet, and biting each at the other's face. In the meantime the girl moved about the room, keeping out of the way of the duelists, and as she did so Bradley caught a glimpse of her full face, and immediately recognised her as the girl of the place of the yellow door. He did not dare intervene now, until one of the Wiru had overcome the other, lest the two should turn upon him at once. When the changes were fair, that he would be defeated in so unequal a battle, as the curved blade of the red Wiru would render it, and so he waited, watching the white-robed figure, slowly choking the life from him of the red robe. The protruding tongue and the popping eyes proclaimed that the end was near, and a moment later the red robe sank to the floor of the room, the curved blade slipping from nerveless fingers. For an instant longer the victor clung to the throat of his defeated antagonist, and then he rose, dragging the body after him, and approached the central column. Here he raised the body and thrust it into the aperture, where Bradley saw it drop suddenly from sight. Instantly there flashed into his memory the circular openings in the roof of the river vault, and the corpses he had seen drop from them to the water beneath. As the body disappeared, the Wiru turned and cast about the room for the girl. For a moment he stood eyeing her. You saw, he muttered, and if you tell them, he who speaks for Luata will have my wings severed while still I live, and my head will be severed, and I shall be cast into the river of death. For thus it happens, even to the highest who slay one of the red robe. You saw, and you must die, he ended with a scream as he rushed upon the girl. Bradley waited no longer. Leaping into the room, he ran for the Wiru, who had already seized the girl, and as he ran, he stopped and picked up the curved blade. The creature's back was toward him, as with his left hand he seized it by the neck. Like a flash the great wings beat backward, as the creature turned and Bradley was swept from his feet, though he still retained his hold upon the blade. Instantly the weary was upon him. Bradley lay slightly raised upon his left elbow, his right arm free, and as the thing came close, he cut at the hideous face with all the strength that lay within him. The blade struck at the junction of the neck and torso, and with such force as to completely decapitate the Wiru, the hideous head dropping to the floor and the body falling forward upon the Englishman. Pushing it from him, he rose to his feet, 
and faced the wide-eyed girl. Luata, she exclaimed, how came you here? Bradley shrugged. Here I am, he said, but the thing now is to get out of here, both of us. The girl shook her head. It cannot be, she stated sadly. That is what I thought when they dropped me into the blue place of seven skulls, replied Bradley. Can't be done. I did it. Here, you're mussing up the floor something awful, you. This last to the dead Wiru, as he stopped and dragged the corpse to the central shaft, where he raised it to the aperture and let it slip into the tube. Then he picked up the head and tossed it after the body. Don't be so glum, he admonished the former, as he carried it toward the well. Smile! But how can he smile? questioned the girl, a half-puzzled, half-frightened look upon her face. He's dead. That's so, admitted Bradley, and I suppose he does feel a bit cut up about it. The girl shook her head and edged away from the man toward the door. Come, said the Englishman, we've got to get out of here. If you don't know a better way than the river, it's the river then. The girl still eyed him askance. But how could he smile when he was dead? Bradley laughed aloud. I thought we English were supposed to have the least sense of humour of any people in the world, he cried. But now I've found one human being who hasn't any. Of course you don't know half I'm saying. But don't worry, little girl. I'm not going to hurt you, and if I can get you out of here, I'll do it. Even if she did not understand all he said, she at least read something in his smiling countenance, something which reassured her. I do not fear you, she said, though I do not understand all that you say, even though you speak my own tongue and use words that I know. But as for escaping, she sighed, alas, how can it be done? I escaped from the blue place of seven skulls, Bradley reminded her. Come, and he turned toward the shaft and the ladder that he had ascended from the river. We cannot waste time here. The girl followed him, but at the doorway both drew back, for from below came the sound of someone ascending. Bradley tiptoed to the door and peered cautiously into the well. Then he stepped back beside the girl. There are half a dozen of them coming up, but possibly they will pass this room. No, she said, they will pass directly through this room. They are on their way to him who speaks for Luata. We may be able to hide in the next room. There are skins there beneath which we may crawl. They will not stop in that room but they may stop in this one for a short time. The other room is blue. What's that got to do with it? demanded the Englishman. They fear blue, she replied. In every room where murder has been done, you will find blue. A certain amount for each murder. When the room is all blue, they shun it. This room has much blue, but evidently they kill mostly in the next room, which is now all blue. "'But there is blue on the outside of every house I have seen,' said Bradley. "'Yes,' assented the girl, "'and there are blue rooms in each of those houses. "'When all the rooms are blue, "'then the whole outside of the house will be blue 
as is the blue place of seven skulls. There are many such here. And the skulls with blue upon them, inquired Bradley, did they belong to murderers? They were murdered, some of them. Those with only a small amount of blue were murderers, known murderers. All Wirus are murderers. When they have committed a certain number of murders without being caught at it, they confess to him who speaks for Luata and are advanced, after which they wear robes with a slash of some colour. I think yellow comes first. When they reach a point where the entire robe is of yellow, they discard it for a white robe with a red sash. And when one wins a complete red robe, he carries such a long curved knife as you have in your hand. After that comes the blue slash on a white robe, and then, I suppose, an all-blue robe. I have never seen such a one. As they talked in low tones, they had moved from the room of the death shaft into an all-blue room adjoining, where they sat down together in a corner with their backs against a wall and drew a pile of hides over themselves. A moment later, they heard a number of wirus enter the chamber. They were talking together as they crossed the floor, or the two could not have heard them. Halfway across the chamber, they halted as the door toward which they were advancing opened, and a dozen others of their kind entered the apartment. Bradley could guess all this by the increased volume of sound and the dismal greetings, but the sudden silence that almost immediately ensued he could not fathom, for he could not know that from beneath one of the hides that covered him protruded one of his heavy army shoes, or that some eighteen large wirus with robes either solid red or slashed with red or blue were standing gazing at it, nor could he hear their stealthy approach. The first intimation he had that he had been discovered was when his foot was suddenly seized and he was yanked violently from beneath the hides to find himself surrounded by menacing blades. They would have slain him on the spot had not one clothed all in red held them back, saying that he who speaks for Luata desired to see this strange creature. As they led Bradley away, he caught an opportunity to glance back toward the hides to see what had become of the girl, and to his gratification he discovered that she still lay concealed beneath the hides. He wondered if she would have the nerve to attempt the river trip alone, and regretted that now he could not accompany her. He felt rather all in himself, more so than he had at any time since he had been captured by the Wiru, for there appeared not the slightest cause for hope in his present predicament. He had dropped the curved blade beneath the hides when he had been jerked so violently from their fancied security. It was almost in a spirit of resigned hopelessness that he quietly accompanied his captors through various chambers and corridors toward the heart of the temple. End of chapter 3